Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, this is a program that focuses on the events that are happening in our world. And Rick, on this program today, it seems like we're focusing mainly on Israel. It certainly is, Jimmy. We are focusing on Israel, but the world is focusing on Israel. I know in past programs, you have talked about conflicts taking place all over the world. There was Russia and Ukraine and many different things happening. But when this took place in Israel, the whole world paid attention. And that's what the Bible says is going to happen. Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, is going to be the center of controversy in the end times. And this is going to be the culmination of God's prophetic plan for the future. That's right, Rick. You know, we're edifying and educating the body of Christ. And you know, if you have followed this program, that we do focus on the Jewish people because God's not finished with them yet. Ken Timmerman will be with us today, and he's coming from a week having been in Israel. David Dolan, of course, will give us an update on what's taking place. Winky Madad from Shiloh. Steve Herzig talking about a Hanukkah holiday coming up this next week. And Dr. Jimmy DeYoung on our Legacy Series will be focusing on the birth of Jesus Christ, which happens this month. Rick, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get started with our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with us. He's a weekly guest. He's an author. He's an analyst. He's an expert on geopolitical affairs. He's got several books and a vast array of experience. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Thank you. Well, Ken, we uh, sometimes play a game, and we've talked about it before. Where in the world is Ken Timmerman? Because you do travel quite a bit. I know you were in France, but I know you had the opportunity to spend the week in Jerusalem. If you could, give us an update. Why were you there, and what did you see when you were there? I've been in Israel all week. I I just got back to France uh, on Friday. And, you know, it's extraordinary, Rick, to see, even as you arrive in Ben-Gurion Airport, you go down those long stairs, and every step— has a photo about, you know, Mm. a two foot by 10 inch photo of one of the hostages and they cover both sides of those steps. And there must be a hundred, there are at least a hundred steps going down. It is a very dramatic thing to see. Uh, When I was leaving afterwards, they had removed many of the photos because of the hostages, the roughly a hundred hostages who had been released so far. Israel has not yet begun to grieve the taking of these hostages, they haven't yet begun to grieve. It hasn't sunk in completely all the people who have died. Friends of mine that I spoke to while I was there, one person had 10 relatives, 10 relatives in the IDF who were being deployed to Gaza. That was something that was taking his mind every day, every single moment of every day. Uh, this is a big big war, Rick. I'm not sure that Americans really comprehend how big it is. It's it's more than 20 times the the number of casualties that happened in 9-11. Every family has been affected uh, either through somebody who was killed, who was taken hostage, or somebody who was serving in the IDF and is down to the front today. We've been learning more, Rick, this week, and it's something I'd like to share with our listeners about the way that Hamas is treated the hostages. You know, there was very little information in the beginning when the exchanges took place. And now, bit by bit, some of the stories are coming out. There was an Israeli doctor, trauma doctor, who's been treating some of the women who were raped. And uh, he said, I encourage them to tell their stories. The wife of Israel's president wrote an op-ed in Newsweek this week saying that 
Those women had been raped so brutally that their pelvic bones had been broken. These kind of things are, are just awful, and we haven't heard them before, Rick. Uh, the Israelis are showing a, an hour-long video to selected journalists and to people in the diplomatic corps uh, taken from the Hamas GoPro cameras that they were we wearing. And you see these Hamas uh, terrorists just exulting in the massacre of babies and of women, of children, uh, and they're, they're thrilled by what they are doing. These are things that I think the world needs to see, Rick, and I would, you know, I'm happy to be able to provide some of that testimony right here. Well, Ken, as you look at this, and we've been talking with Dave Dolan, he's been giving us our updates on a daily basis, and we are going to talk with Winky Madad a little later on in the program, but your firsthand perspective with your experience, Israel and the Jewish people got hit harder on October 7th than any day since the Holocaust, since World War II. And you look at that, how do you feel the spirit of the country is? Do you feel like they're resolved or do they feel beaten? What did you feel? What did you see when you were there? Oh, no, people are resolved. This is this is something that it go, is universal. It goes from left to right. All of those protests that you saw about the judicial reforms before uh, this, where there are 250,000 people in the street uh, protesting Bibi and Bibi Netanyahu and his government, that's done. That is over. They're still not happy with those reforms, but that is really on a completely different planet now to what's happening right now. Everybody in Israel, and I really think this is virtually unanimous, understands they have to finish Hamas. And it doesn't mean waiting for the U.S. You know, to come in with some ceasefire and then the marching bands come out onto the playing field and they talk. And No, no, this is real. On Friday, Hamas broke the temporary truce uh, by launching rockets into Israel. The U.N. actually acknowledged that. And the Israelis have restarted their offenses. I've been talking to soldiers, Rick, and, and to a man, they have been saying, we want to go in and finish this. Even their commanders have been have been telling the IDF general staff, said, don't you dare stop this fight. We have to finish Hamas. I think the country is truly united around it, Rick. It's amazing to see it. And it gets more uh, solidified the more stories you hear. Let me give you one more example. We learned this week that a teacher, a Palestinian teacher employed by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, had shielded a hostage for 50 days. He had been tapped by Hamas, or maybe he was a Hamas member, to guard a hostage for 50 days. Didn't feed this person very often, not every day. And the more you hear the details of how these hostages, these Israeli hostages were held in Hamas, the more it uh, brings alive those memories of the Holocaust. I had the opportunity to go to Yad Vashem and to take a, a friend who had not been to Israel before to Yad Vashem to see it. And the thing that really struck me, Rick, and I know that you've been there several times as I have been, but seeing Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, after the October 7th massacre was a completely different experience. You mm. understood immediately going in there from what you saw of what the Nazis did to the Jews during World War II. That's exactly what Hamas is trying to do to Israel and to do to Jews today. And there's no difference whatsoever. This is a genocidal movement, Hamas, and Israel has every right and must go and wipe them out. 
Well, Ken, so in the light of that report and what you're saying about their resolve, now you're our geopolitical expert. Is the world going to give Israel the time? And maybe they'll just take the time no matter what. But uh, is the world and maybe especially the United States, their strongest ally, are we going to give them the time to do what they need to do in Gaza? So far, we are. Secretary Blinken was in Israel on Friday, and he was not telling the Israelis to stop the fighting. He was saying, look, we want to position hospital ships. We want to help civilians in Gaza. And the Israelis are fine with that. The IDF has put out a map for Gazan civilians showing different areas where they can relocate to and, and dozens of different areas, not just one or two. They want to protect civilians. They're doing everything that they can to protect civilians. And I think the United States and even the Europeans are starting to realize that. The absolute cynicism of Hamas has begun to penetrate even in Washington, D.C., believe it or not, and even in European capitals. Well, Ken, let's move on, and we'll talk a little bit about the wider Middle East uh, situation because there are things taking place around the Middle East that are going to affect the situation that is there in Israel. And one of those is that it looks like that Iran is looking to block the Straits of Hormuz, which is a very strategic point. Could you explain what's going on there? Well, the Iranians have always threatened to block the Strait of Hormuz for decades now. They have not had the capability of doing it. I believe, and, and I say this based on information that has been uh, provided to me by Iranian defectors from the Iranian uh, naval forces, the IRGC naval forces, I believe they today they have the capability to do that. However, just this week, the USS Eisenhower transited the Strait of Hormuz with its entire carrier force battle group. Rick, this is an amazing array of ships. Uh, I've been on these carriers in the Persian Gulf as a journalist in the past and seen it. Just look at the shots that the Pentagon will release from the air as you watch this armada going through the narrow Strait of Hormuz. Uh, The Iranians take notice and they understand that each of those carriers, there's one now in the Strait of Hormuz, has uh, 60 to 80 fighter jets on, on it. We now have three carrier strike battle groups in the region, and it's not to help Israel against Hamas. So we have 180 to 200 uh, strike aircraft in the region. They're all targeting Iran, in my opinion. Uh, We'll have to see how that works out. But the Iranians are taking notice. I think they're worried. I think that is also why they have not unleashed Hezbollah to attack Israel in a big way. Hezbollah is still acting like a gnat on the rear end of of an elephant. They're engaging in, in intermittent rocket attacks into Israel, but they've not launched a full scale attack as they had in 2006. So the Iranians, I think, are taking notice of these U.S. presence, which, again, cannot be explained by any U.S. military support for Israel. Those aircraft and those aircraft carriers and and the destroyers and the rest of them are there aimed at the Islamic State of Iran. Well, Ken, as always, we appreciate your insight as we look at these situations. Ken, if we want to keep up with you, and a lot of our listeners like to follow news sources that they can trust, how could our listeners keep up with you? Go to my website, kentimmerman.com. Once you're there for about five seconds, there's a pop-up. You can sign up for my newsletter. It comes out generally on Friday afternoons, and I give you a preview of what we're going to talk about. But I talk about other things as well. And this week, especially, I'm going to talk a lot about my experiences in Israel, uh, seeing the resolve of the Israeli people and of the IDF to defeat Hamas. As always, Ken, great job. And you make us want to go back to Israel, which we will in the future. 
We'll take a break and we'll come back with David Dolan right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The military leaders of three West African nations recently met to legitimize a security and political alliance. Islamic terror groups are rampantly active in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. They've been wreaking havoc in the region since 2015. Greg Kelly of Unknown Nations, formerly World Mission, says, On one hand, this is an expression of, hey, we are not going to tolerate this anymore. We want to be known as a region of prosperity, not a region defined by insecurities. It's hard for them to move forward economically when you have constant upheaval. The other piece of it is their efforts to become less dependent on Western aid. Terror attacks have left 3 million people homeless in Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. Local believers are offering help and hope in the name of Jesus. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. And for many Americans, the end of the year brings images of happy families gathered around a Christmas tree, big dinners, holiday music, and cozy fires. For others, the holidays can be a much darker time. According to the CDC, the most dangerous times of the year for drug and alcohol-related deaths are December, January, and March. But the Lighthouse offers hope. Care managers guide struggling men through a holistic recovery process founded on Scripture. Executive Director Brandon Bauer says, Life transformation is a common result. It's amazing to see someone who's so broken and sick start to smile again and reconnect with family and have hope for the first time in a long time. If someone in your life struggles with addiction, reach out to The Lighthouse. We'll connect you at missionnews.org. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, and we're going to continue with our coverage on the Israel-Hamas war and what is taking place there in Israel. And we have author and analyst Dave Dolan with us, as he is just about every week. Dave, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Rick. Glad to do it. Well, Dave, as I mentioned, you have been keeping us updated on a daily basis on our Prophecy Today Daily, but of course here on the weekend as well as to what is taking place in Israel. We've been covering the war on this program, starting off with Ken, and we're going to have Winky on next. But Dave, if you could, could you give us an update? Where is Israel in their war with Hamas? And also, uh, if you could, let us know what's going on with Hezbollah in the north. Well, Rick, of course, the uh, seven-day, it turned out to be truce. Uh, Originally, just four days was negotiated, but three more extensions were uh, put on. Uh, Hamas releasing 10 hostages per day in exchange for three times that number of Palestinian prisoners being released. Uh, It broke down uh, Friday morning. The Israelis said it was Hamas that had decided not to continue it because they failed to produce the required list of hostages for Friday that would be released Friday evening, supposedly. Of course, that didn't happen. And uh, an hour before it was set to expire, they opened fire with some rocket attacks on southern Israel. The White House, by the way, later confirmed that it was Hamas that had decided not to continue with the truce at this time. But they said negotiations are still going on via Qatar to see if it can be resumed at a certain point. 
Hamas apparently said it didn't have enough female hostages to release, but the Israelis say that's not true, that there are still at least 17 hostages that are women and children. Overall, 137 Israelis, uh, some of them uh, Americans, are still being held hostage by the Palestinians after this seven-day pause. There was the release of 113 captives during these seven days, including 24 non-Israelis. Those were mostly male Thai workers. So the uh, war resumed. Israel uh, began the bombing campaign soon after the truce ended, especially in the north, but some also in the south. They started uh, dropping leaflets over Khan Yunus, the largest city in the south, which is known to be a major center of Hamas activity, and probably the Hamas leadership had fled there after Gaza City was captured or while it was being captured. And so they're warning citizens to go to nearby safe zones because activity will resume there fairly soon. They issued a map, Rick, of uh, various places throughout the Gaza Strip that Israel promises will not be touched militarily and where Palestinians can flee to uh, in safety. Of course, the aid convoys stopped as soon as the fighting started. And of the northern border exploded. Uh, Hezbollah was warned again by Israel beforehand, don't rejoin this war, stay out. But uh, Friday afternoon, a terror squad opened fire on an IDF base along the northern border. Israel responded with heavy artillery fire, saying they got the terror squad. Then there were some rockets fired from uh, Hezbollah at Kiryat Shmona, the major city up there and other other places. So it looks like that's going to be an active zone. Of course, that comes after we had trouble during the week in the Red Sea again, another Houthi uh, attack upon uh, either Israel or American ship in the area. Uh, we're not sure which, but the Americans were able to shoot that down. So the uh, war's back on, and it's just a question now of where it goes and does the uh, world allow it to continue, or are, is there going to be, in particularly the United States, or is there going to be attempts to uh, get another pause here? The Israelis don't mind another pause. They were willing to continue this for sure. And in fact, frankly, uh, Rick, Hamas could end this whole thing tomorrow, even today, if they would just announce that they are releasing all of the remaining hostages being held in their captivity, including uh, the bodies of several dead Israelis that they claim to have, people that died in captivity. Well, David, as we continue to cover the Hamas attack on Israel in the aftermath from October 7th, We've heard this week that there's a report from Israeli intelligence saying that an Hamas attack could have taken place exactly how it did. Can you tell us about that? Yes, Rick, it's a very disturbing report and one that will have uh, grave implications for the Israeli government and leadership, security leadership, uh, military leadership, but not today because, of course, they're back in an active war and their goal is still to get rid of Hamas, at least to get all the hostages back, but certainly to continue on. The report said that a document called Jericho Wall was drawn up by Israeli security officials who were putting together all of the security assessments of what Hamas was doing, that they were training with hang gliders, that they were training motorcycle squads, that they were training with automatic weapons that would be placed along the border, that they were training with drones that would take out the surveillance cameras and other things along the border, and that they had set up a, a small mock kibbutz inside of northern Gaza where they were training house-to-house -house fighting and doing all the things they later did. So the 40-page report, according to the New York Times, 
detailed all of this, said here's what Hamas would like to do, and laid it all out. And it was apparently not handed to the prime minister, uh, but the defense minister, certainly the uh, military chiefs, certainly the security chiefs, the head of the Shin Bet, etc., about a year ago, we're told, in the New York Times report, this was uh, circulated. And the conclusion of all of the leaders that read it and all of the officials, apart from one female analyst, was that, no, this is aspirational. Hamas would like to do this. This is what they dream of. But they simply don't have the capability, the capacity to do that, i.e., Israel vastly underestimated its enemy here. And, of course, we'll remember the 9-11 report said essentially the same thing, that the warnings were ignored of these 19 Saudis, that there was uh, indications that some of them were terrorists and other other things, and uh, the attack took place that that we could never imagine. And that's what the report basically says in the New York Times, that the Israelis simply could not believe this could take place, vastly underestimating Hamas. And I think that is true, Rick. I felt that way for some years, that that they were underestimating their enemy there a bit, precisely because they are under Iran's control. And these men have been flown to Iran, have been trained thoroughly there, as well as in the Gaza Strip. And these, this is a top fighting force, the Revolutionary Guard. So, you know, they're not playing with just a few terror cells anymore. These are very organized uh, terrorists. And, of course, by the way, signaling the end of the truce uh, yesterday was that horrible terror attack in Jerusalem. Four Israelis were killed, including a pregnant woman. So you could really say five in when they opened fire at the entrance to Jerusalem at a bus station. So Hamas is a terror group. Hamas is capable, apparently, of quite a, quite a bit. And we know Hezbollah is capable of a, of a lot. So there are going to be some heads roll for sure, uh, Rick, but not right away. It's in the middle of battle. There's rockets again landing in Tel Aviv on Friday and being aimed at other areas as well as in the north. So, you know, this is the situation at present. Well, Dave, as we look at that report and the warning that it gave, it reminds me of your book, Holy War for the Promised Land, in which you talk about Hamas. And you basically said that Hamas was most likely going to do what they eventually did do on October 7th. And in this book, you talk about Hamas, and this was before Hamas even came to power in Gaza, and you talk about the threat that they could be. You look at their charter. I'm looking at it. You talk about Article 6 says Hamas is working to unfurl the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine, which means all of modern-day Israel. So there was warnings in place. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to that conclusion, why you thought Hamas might do this, and what is the ideology that drives them? Well, Rick, again, this is basic fundamentalist Islam. By that, I mean when they quote in that charter from the uh, Hadith, from their oral tradition, that Muhammad himself beheaded Jews with a sword uh, in some raids in, in Arabia and some other things that happened. When they quote that in their charter, they're quoting their scriptures. They're quoting the basic belief, faith of their religion. Now, thankfully, most Muslims today are not going around cutting off heads or wanting to do that. 
but that is in their scripture. And I pointed out in the book that Jesus rebuked Peter for picking up a sword, whereas in the Quran, it's the opposite. So that's just the reality. And I thought Hamas could become a major, major player because Iran would back them. At that time, we already had peace with Egypt. It was pretty clear that the largest Sunni Muslim country in the region was finished with its war with Israel, at least we hope so, and it has held until now. So uh, Hamas couldn't rely on them for backing. Then Jordan made peace, so the same thing. But they had non-Sunni Arab, but Muslim, fundamentalist Muslim Iran, which as we know is extremely fundamentalist Muslims, who believe that jihad must be waged until Islam rules over all the earth and all the infidels are subdued. That's what the scriptures say, their scriptures say. That's what they quote. That's what they hope for, aspire for, and believe will come. So, you know, Israel may get rid of the group Hamas, but they're not going to be able to get rid of the religious ideology, if you will, or belief system that uh, allowed it to be established and received by a majority of the Palestinians, as the polls still show they do, as a major force uh, in this conflict. That's author and journalist Dave Doling helping us to understand not only what is taking place in Israel right now, but why it is happening. Dave, thanks so much. We look forward to talking to you again soon. I do too as well, Rick. God bless. Key, key information, David. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Israel Madad in Israel, and then Steve Herzig, Friends of Israel, talking about Hanukkah, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We do, Jimmy, and that's the focus of our program is enlightening people on Bible prophecy and the importance and the gift that it is to us. We appreciate your prayers and support as we continue to do this for you here at Prophecy Today. Yes, and Rick, it's so important that we are doing what we're doing in the time because we need to be aware of what's happening in our world. We need to expand our worldview. So let's do that with our good friend Israel Madad, which we know as Winky. That's right, Jimmy. Israel Madad joins us. We call him Winky because that's his nickname. He's the former mayor of Shiloh, a man who is in the know of politics, history, religion. He lives in the area of Judea and Samaria, which is the West Bank, as the rest of the world knows it. We call it Judea and Samaria because that's what the Bible calls it. Winky, thank you for joining us today. Once again, thank you very much for you having me on. 
Well, Winky, the first thing I'd like to talk to you about, and like I said, you live in the area of Judea and Samaria, or as others call it, the West Bank. Uh, We know that that is somewhat seen as maybe the third front after Gaza and after the northern front. If you could, Winky, just let us know what's going on in that area right now. Well, um, I usually go to Jerusalem as a retiree three times a week, and I get on the bus about quarter of seven in the morning, get to Jerusalem about... 8.15, 8.30, and I leave Jerusalem about 3.30 or so on a bus, uh, unless I have something else to do, and I've had no problems. I'm not saying that we don't have security concerns, but I don't feel there's any change except, of course, for the fact that our community, as other communities along the road, are much more, shall I say, I don't want to use the word fortified because it means fortifications, but every possible person who could be called up for reserve duty is on reserve duty and is extra security on the periphery or perimeter, maybe I should say, of the communities, extra checking at the gates, uh, because of course the nature of the Hamas attack was a mass attack uh, on the fence or on the border, whatever you want to call it. Ofra, where my daughter lives about a week and a half ago or just about two weeks ago, One Arab was shooting from across the entrance. Uh, I'm sure you remember the entrance to Ofra, which is just south of Shiloh. And there have been the normal, unfortunately, terror incidents, but I'm not going to call in the alarm. One more point I can make is that the army is overwhelmingly involved in going after terror cells in Tulkarim, in Jenin, in Jericho, and other places, and we've seen a huge effect on the Arab population who join in the terror uh, acts, and they are suffering because of their, allow me to say, their evil acts. Well, Winky, we've been talking to you for quite a while now, many, many years, and uh, it does seem like October 7th has changed things. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later, but you certainly are much more vigilant, and I guess that's the way that you're going to need to be. That's the reality going forward. But before we talk about that, let's talk about politics. Now, we've had you help us to explain Israeli politics, which is a very complicated subject, admittedly. But uh, we look at this situation right now. If you could give us an overview, we know that there are still many people that don't like Benjamin Netanyahu and even are not rallying behind him during this time. And even some of the people to his far right are threatening to bring down the government if he doesn't continue to prosecute Hamas after this ceasefire. So if you could, could you give us just a, a snapshot of what is taking place in Israeli politics right now? The short answer is the normal is the crazy. Well, the crazy is the normal. I feel very comfortable talking to you and our listeners. As you say, we've talked for a long time over the years, so I hope I'm understood properly. The one negative aspect of an Israeli politician is he always has to make a statement to the press or the media, whether in his name or leaked, just to be recognized. It's like one of the uh, qualifications for being a politician, leak information to the media to be different. And uh, that's that's a normal activity. Is the government uh, functioning? Yes. Is it uh, more than half united? Yes, because Benny Gantz came in and Yair Lapid is out. So are feathers ruffled every once in a while over issues like a budget or harsher uh, or more stringent uh, procedures to take or to uh, follow the war a little bit more, talking to Blinken, all these things 
in my opinion, I don't want to disappoint anybody out there, but they're fairly normal for Israeli politics. And I see things as basically stable, at least until the war is finished one way or another, whether with complete success, whether with 80% success, or whether, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Netanyahu knuckles under Mr. Blinken. Uh, he's here right now, and uh, the, one of the leaks is that he's, oh, you guys got a couple of weeks, not a couple of months, and make more surgical strikes. You know, if, if that was the method in World War II, we still would have been fighting the Nazis. Very interesting comparison. Well, that leads to my next question then. After this truce is over, and uh, regardless of what you think about the truce or whether they should have done it, it is wonderful that many of these hostages are coming home. But the problem with having this truce is that it has possibly given Hamas time to regroup. And also, maybe some people are saying that it might be harder for the government and Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, to continue to prosecute this war the way he was. What do you think? Will they be able to act actually eradicate Hamas forever, which is was the stated goal? And what does the future look like in Gaza? Well, I don't think we can eradicate completely the Hamas. What we can do is destroy enough of their bunkers, material, tunnels, weapons, rockets, and kill as many of their leadership and commanders as possible so that some sort of political substitute will come in. I mean, what's the whole problem with Hamas? We've always had Hamas from 18, 1987 on, okay? It's not that Hamas exists. It's that in 2006, a year after the disengagement, Hamas took over Gaza, and Gaza became a, a semi-government or quasi-government, whatever you want to call it, and UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Works Agency, and other NGOs, are uh, sucking up to them and, and crying to them and claiming that there's inhumanity and there's suffering. And, and it, but if you go on Google and look at uh, pictures of Gaza, you can see beautiful buildings and malls and beaches. So they're all selling us stuff that's, that's worthless. So we have to replace that. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to do that. I don't know exactly how. I don't know if it means a full military victory or half military and finally someone comes in to help us. But that's the goal right now. As for the abductees, the hostages, I mean, if Hamas cannot at this stage come up with more names, which is at the present moment that I'm talking to you and I know exactly how it goes on for the next day or so, okay, but let's presume that's the situation getting harder and harder. Either that means that they're not holding them, either it means they don't know where they are, at all, okay, and 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 the first option, of course, means that they're dependent on the Islamic Jihad or, or some other people out there and stuff like that. Or the third possibility is that either they're very sick and wounded and they don't want to show them, or they're not with us anymore. And in that situation, it doesn't make a difference if we continue the fight or not. Winky, before October 7th, we had a conversation on this program, and we talked about the Yom Kippur War, and, and it was said to have reshaped the Middle East, and that was the Middle East that we lived in, but really, that was the Middle East that was lived in up until October 7th, and it seems like October 7th may reshape the Middle East again. Can you talk a little bit about that? What does Israel's relationship with its neighbors look like going forward, and how is it going to change the Middle East? I'll just pick on one point because that's a question for a lecture. Uh, the short answer is that just like the Yom Kippur War provided 
a, can I call it, a high among the Arab world that, yes, Israel can be seriously wounded. And that's what happened then to a certain extent, and it's happened again now. I mean, if you look at the military history, within uh, 19 to 21 days, we turned everything around in the Yom Kippur War at a cost. Uh, and right now, with Gaza, we're doing very well in terms of destroying Hamas capabilities. So we are proving our military strength. But what we did do is we proved that if they're clever enough, devious enough, sneaky enough, they can do a lot of harm. And that's all they're interested in. I don't think they think they can really conquer Israel. They can do enough military damage that might, as you ask me, change the Middle East by drawing in Iran, by uh, Hezbollah being, having been more effective than it was in the past month and a half. And that's where the danger rise. When people, especially Arab people, begin to believe that Israel has uh, weakened itself, uh, that's when the trouble starts. There's a, there's a Talmudic phrase which is the original Aramaic escapes me right now, but in English translation it says, when the ox slips, the knife slits. In other words, when the strong ox shows a little bit of weakness, that's when it can be injured seriously. And uh, that's at the stage where we are now. Well, Winky, my final question to you, I'd like to ask you about Hanukkah. Hanukkah is always a special time in Israel and around the world, but I know this year it's going to be a little bit different because there is a war going on and because of the events of October 7th are still fresh in everybody's mind. Could you tell me what is Hanukkah going to be like in Israel and how are you celebrating this year? Well, the good news is that Chabad set up today a a large Hanukkah, a a Hanukkah candelabrum about... uh, must be about uh, three meters high in Gaza. Okay, so we'll be lighting candles, Hanukkah candles in Gaza this year for the first time in, I don't know, about 40 years. <laughs> the, uh, the second thing, of course, is that we're hearing from the soldiers that a lot of them feel as if they're the Maccabees renewed. Mm. So we still have a tradition and a history that our people are learning and are proud to be part of. That's also good news. The third issue, of course, is uh, whether or not oil and gas and other flammable materials will be gotten into Hamas in Gaza, and I hope we can stop that. Otherwise, I hope it'll be a great holiday. Uh, you know personally the effect of the Suf Ganiot, those special stuffed donuts that mm-hmm. manages to stuff us all up with, <laughs> uh, with extra calories and stuff like that. So uh, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. I think we've in some places, of course, it'll be very somber for some people because families are not whole. Families are uh, separated. They've lost members. We have uh, several kibbutzim there in the southwest that have to be rebuilt. But uh, between you and me, we've been around a very long time. And I think we still have the uh, ability and the strength to renew ourselves and rebuild ourselves. Certainly so, and very well said. And, and Winky, we so appreciate your insight on culture, on history, on politics, and what's taking place. It, it helps us so much. And it, if I could say happy Hanukkah to you, to your family, to your community there. Thank you for being with us, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for your best wishes, and everybody in everybody's family, 
of the listening family of Prophecy Today should be well and healthy. Thank you very much again for having me on the program. Israel Madad is our gentleman that we always go to, and I, we love talking with him. He lives in Shiloh. He brings a lot to the table, helping us to understand what's taking place in the Mideast and uh, in Israel. Well, another person that we go to is a friend of ours, Steve Herzig. If you've been with us through the years, Steve Herzig was always the one that we would go to about the time of the Jewish holidays. And Steve, it is a Jewish holiday, and uh, you're back with us. We do have a holiday coming up, and it's Hanukkah. I love Hanukkah. You know, the saying is that uh, whenever there's a Jewish holiday, it usually means that uh, there was bad time for Israel. They had a fight. We won, and let's eat. <laughs> it is Hanukkah, and here's some of the questions that we're going to talk about today, Steve. So when does Hanukkah start? What is the significance of the festival, and how is it celebrated? Now, despite not being mentioned in the Torah, Hanukkah is one of the most highly anticipated and joyous Jewish festivals of the entire year. When does Hanukkah begin this year? Well, Jimmy, it begins Sunday evening because you know as i know you know this when the sun goes down that's officially the next day Mm. Uh, they don't use 12 o'clock midnight uh they don't use the sun uh well they use the sun in the sense that when it goes down and it gets dark that's (laughs) that's the next day so a full day is from sunset to sunset the next day what is the significance of the festival Oh, Jimmy, the the significance is amazing. I could take you to Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 35, and it really has the formula to destroy the Jews. A lot of people don't know that, but God put in, uh, in his word, through the prophet Jeremiah, the formula to wipe us all out. And that formula is rather simple to understand. God said that if you can go up into the heavens and turn the light out, to the sun, so mm-hmm. find that light switch, and once you turn the light off to the sun, uh, the moon won't reflect its light, so that's step number one. Step number two is to take the foundation of the earth, get your Stanley tape measure, give us the measurement of the foundation of the earth, and oh, by the way, give us the dimensions of the universe, that is the sky, the whole dimension, and so the reply is going to be, wait a minute, no one can possibly do that. That's exactly right. And so the formula to destroy the Jewish people is to become God, and there's only one of him, and man can never duplicate what God does, which means that Jewish people aren't going away. Unfortunately, none of the people who've tried to wipe us out through history, and even currently, uh, got that memo. Uh, I wish Antiochus Epiphanes would have gotten that memo back in 165 B.C., uh, a Syrian general who took o- one of the four who took over for Alexander, and he was on his way to uh, attack Egypt, but they had a pact with Rome, and when Rome found out that he wanted to take over, they warned him, and he better stay away or they would he would meet their wrath. They were coming power. And so as he went back through Israel, Jimmy, he he got angry. He mm-hmm. was like a child, spoiled child, angry. And he decided to legislate, through force, a removal of Judaism, to Mm. assimilate the Jews or kill them. So he went to the Temple Mount, and he killed a pig on the altar. 
and threw its blood and juice all over the place and declared Jerusalem un-Jewish, that if they, if they celebrated any holiday, followed any law, had circumcisions for their eight-day-old baby boys, all that was outlawed. And as a result, uh, was trying to eliminate the Jewish people, anti-Semitism at its best. Well, what happened is he sent garrisoned soldiers throughout Israel, and he sent one of those garrisons to a place called Modin. You've probably been to the modern oh, yes. Modin. I know mm-hmm. I have. And when they got there, they wanted to uh, ask Hellenist Jews, that is, those Jews who, who weren't keeping the law, who were pretty comfortable with being secular, to kill a pig and to eat it in front of the people. Mm. Well, when that they asked the high priest, whose name was Mattathias, he refused to do it. And in fact, when a Hellenist Jew volunteered to do it, he killed him. And he had five sons. There was a riot that broke out. Uh, Mattathias and his sons uh, killed that garrison, wiped them out, fled to the mountains, and started guerrilla warfare. Now, the Jewish people were mostly farmers. They weren't fighters. Uh, And once battle after battle was won, they gained more and more confidence until three years later, the Maccabees and the Jewish people were able to go back to the Temple Mount, go up that Temple Mount, and cleanse that temple. They defeated Antiochus, who thought he was God, defeated him. And the story is, Jimmy, that they only could find one flask of oil, enough that would burn only 24 hours. But the story, and it's a tradition, is that it lasted eight days, Mm. enough for the... Uh, the high priest to get kosher or fit oil for the lamp, the seven-branched menorah, which was in the holy place. So it's a memorial to the miracle that took place. It's a great story, Jimmy, and you were right when you said that Jewish people celebrate this day. They really do. It's a kid's day uh, because they play dreidel, which has uh, four letters on it, which stand for a uh, Hebrew sentence, which says, a great miracle happened there. That's certainly for the diaspora Jews, those of us who are scattered outside of Israel. When they're in Israel, they play dreidel, and it says, a great miracle happened here. Mm. And there are numbers of miracles, obviously, Jimmy, that happened in Israel. So that's the basic story of Hanukkah. Now, how is Hanukkah celebrated today as far as if you're in your family, when you were growing up, can you just kind of talk us through that first night and then what happened night after night after night? Oh, Jimmy. Yeah, it's, it's a great time. I, as I said before, uh, whenever there's persecution, Jewish people are in trouble. They call on to God. He delivers them and we eat just as we do on Hanukkah. <laughs> yeah. And at Hanukkah, we have anything with oil as a reminder of the great miracle that took place. So uh, donuts are a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, potato pancakes are a big deal. Anything with oil is eaten. And the way we celebrate, we have a menorah. It's called a Hanukkah. And, you know, Jimmy, you've been in Israel enough to know that when you go to a store to get, uh, you know, the tourists go to get some sort of gift, they see two different kinds of menorahs. There's the seven-branch menorah and the nine-branch menorah. The seven-branch menorah is the one that models what the temple had, Mm -hmm. seven branches outlined in Leviticus and Exodus. 
But then there's the nine-branch menorah, and that's for Hanukkah. And so the question would be, wait a minute, I just thought you said it was an eight-day miracle, right? Uh, not a nine-day miracle. But the key is, Jimmy, that one of the candles is usually higher than the other eight, and that's called the Shamus candle, the servant candle. Mm. And according to tradition, again, when I was growing up, you always lit the Shamus candle with a match, and then that candle was the one that lit each of the days. So the first day, as we said, would be the evening of the 28th. There'll be two candles in the menorah. Uh, one will be the Shamus candle, and then that candle will light the first day. And then there'll be three candles for the second day and four mm. candles. Every time you light the Shamus, and it serves the other candle by providing the light. And we give gifts as well. We celebrate what happened that Antiochus was defeated, we rededicated the temple, uh, and we were able to worship, have temple worship uh, once again, which begs the question, Jimmy, mm. I know you, later you'll be talking about Christmas. I could tell you, Jimmy, there would be no Christmas unless there was Hanukkah. Mm. That's significant. That's why it's so important to us as believers, and that's the promise that Jeremiah had back in Jeremiah 31. And so uh, through the saving of the Jewish people, of course, would come the the promised Messiah from the tribe of Judah. Mm. That, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, celebrating Hanukkah is significant for Jewish people. It coincides with Christmas. I was growing up, I used to be jealous of all the Gentile Christian people I knew. They'd get all these presents tons of presents under their tree. Well, we get eight presents. My mother would buy little trinkets uh, and each day give us a new present. And that kind of tradition still goes on as presents are shared and uh, lights are lit. And it's a joyous, wonderful day. How can, uh, and I, I started off this by saying that it's not mentioned in the Torah, but it is mentioned in the scriptures. Daniel prophesied that Antiochus would come. Uh, Jesus even went to Jerusalem and he proclaimed that I am the light of the world right after or during the festival of lights. How can we today use this as a way to uh, evangelize to the Jewish people, to our Jewish friends? Well, you know, it, it, you're, you're correct when you say that Hanukkah is not mentioned in the, in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament Scripture, but you're also correct. In John chapter 10, mm. it's very significant, because in John chapter 10 and verse 22, it says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication, another name for Hanukkah, and it was in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the Temple of Solomon's porch. And, and from verse 22 to verse 30, you have a little account of what was taking place. And, and the Jewish leadership was having trouble with him uh, being the Messiah, the Son of God. He forgave, in chapter 8, he forgave a, a woman caught in adultery. In chapter 9, he, 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 uh, the blind man, he restored his sight. And so he is... He is he is demonstrating who he is, and they're rejecting him. Mm. Uh, and so it's here that he says, using Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication as the background, he says, I and my Father are one. And then he says, no one, that is talking about a sheep, he uses that as an analogy, mm. he's the great shepherd, he's the chief shepherd, 
and so he says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Mm. We know that Hanukkah demonstrates that God's promise is true. The Jewish people as a nation, as a people, are not going to be wiped out, and we can apply that in our Christian walk once we truly trust Christ as our Savior. Uh, and that, that is a personal decision, and really the only two persons who know is that person and God. But once we do that, we are locked in. There is no power on earth that can snatch them out of, out of, uh, out of his hand. Mm. And that, that's a verse of eternal security, Jimmy, that's so important to you and I, that, that we know that, hey, it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, Amen. lest any man should boast. So that means when we're in Christ, we're locked in, and he uses that holiday, that holy day, that special day of Hanukkah to drive home that point. How could we uh, apply that, and how could we reach out to our Jewish friends? Hey, get them a gift at Hanukkah. Uh, I say it doesn't have to be a huge gift, something to acknowledge. If you have a Jewish friend, a neighbor, walk it over to their home, give it to them at their workstation, uh, and just say, hey, I know Hanukkah's coming. Have a happy Hanukkah. Uh, I love the Jewish people. I'm thankful if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have my Jewish Savior or my Jewish Scripture. So have a great holiday. And I am telling you, Jewish people are so thrilled when they are acknowledged by a people, quite frankly, Christians, who they have perceived for years as being enemies of the Jewish people. Mm. Enemies. Mm -hmm. But we're not enemies. We love them. Uh, Your father loved them. Uh, You love them. I love them. And any Bible-believing Christian who knows his or her word, the Word of God, knows that they should love the Jewish people as well. God loves them, and we should love what God loves. So we should love the Jewish people too. Steve, thank you so much again with Friends of Israel, a big supporter. We love their ministry and what they do. Steve, Haksameak to you this holiday season, the Holy Days, and uh, we'll talk to you again on the next Jewish holiday. Looking forward to it, Jimmy. Thanks a lot. Lord bless. Lord bless. Thank you, buddy. Hanukkah this year is next weekend, so this gives you enough time to plan ahead to think about getting a gift to give to your Jewish friends and uh, be a part of sharing the gospel of Christmas this year. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Christmas, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, starting his special Christmas series right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this is the month of December, which we know this is the month of Christmas. And Hanukkah is on its way. We have learned all about Hanukkah. And there's so much information that helps us. Where can people find more information about Bible prophecy and the Jewish holidays? Well, Jimmy, I'm glad you asked. If you go to our website at prophecytoday.com, we have all kinds of material that you could use. There's all kinds of free content there. We'd love for you to go to visit it. If you go to our bookstore, uh, you can look at Bethlehem Beyond the Christmas Story, which is a story of the Tower of the Flock, Migdal Adar. It's a Christmas story. If you go to our website, you can get it there. Or if you call and talk to our office at 423 423- 
825-6247. We will give that to you for a donation of any amount. We just want to get it into your hands. Well, as we begin our study in this month in which we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ, which of course is the Christmas story, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, we will spend some time looking at some of the interesting facts and details related to the Christmas story. This is a special time of the year, for sure. We love this time of the year, as many others do as well. So we're going to spend some time looking into all the details surrounding the first coming of Jesus Christ, which basically sets the stage for the second coming as well. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. As we begin our Bible study this month, I thought it would be very interesting to focus on the season in which we are living. This is one of the greatest times of the year for many of us. I love the Christmas season. Well, we want to spend a couple of weeks looking at some very interesting facts, some details related to the Christmas story. For example, this time we're going to look at how John the Baptist has a real connection to the Christmas story. This will amaze you as we consider the prophetic word of God as it relates to the coming not only of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but to the forerunner. That would be John the Baptist had the Jewish people believed. More on that in just a few moments. By the way, we're going to talk next time we get together about how did we get the 25th day of December to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Is it a possibility that Christ could have been born in the wintertime there in the shepherd's fields just outside of Bethlehem? Many have questioned the possibility of those little shepherd boys watching over those sheep at night during those cold winter nights in Bethlehem in December, and many have speculated that it was probably sometime in the summer that Jesus Christ was born. Well, we'll look at the December 25th date and how that came about. It was the early church fathers who decided on that date, and I'll tell you why. And there's an interesting connection with Jesus Christ as it relates to that date as well. And then we'll further look into the fact, could it have been in the wintertime? And what about those shepherds? Were they really little 14 or 15-year-old boys there in the fields outside of Bethlehem? Or were they grown men? And if they were grown men, why did they have to be grown men? Well, we'll look into that as well. Some of the details, some of the facts surrounding the Christmas story. And finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll spend some time studying the Word of God to determine exactly the location of where Christ was born. And why was it that when the angels said, This will be a sign unto you, these shepherds went with haste to the exact place where Jesus Christ would be born. And in fact, if you had studied the Old Testament, it was not only Bethlehem that was significant, but it was a special place in Bethlehem that the Messiah had to be born. You know, it's very interesting that in the Bible, there are only 168 verses that deal with the birth of Jesus Christ. That's found in four chapters of the Bible, Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and Luke chapters 1 and 2, 168 verses, not a lot of space allotted to the birth, the most magnificent birth in all of history, the birth, the coming of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to start our study today in the book of Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. Zacharias, who would be the father of John the Baptist, who we're going to focus on in our study, was a priest serving in the temple. 
In Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, we see that in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, now that means it had to be around 4 B.C. Remember, Herod died in 4 B.C. Jesus Christ was born before Herod died, and, and so we're talking about 4 B.C., the birth date of Jesus Christ, almost 2,000 years ago. But in the days of Herod, there was a priest, a certain priest called Zacharias. And notice in verse 5, it says, He was of the course of Abia, and his wife was a daughter of Aaron. That means she was a part of the priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi. Her name was Elizabeth. But by the way, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. In other words, they were an older couple. Zacharias went to serve at the temple, and he had the unique privilege of being selected by lot, by the casting of the lot, to be the one who would take the incense and pour them on the altar of incense. Now, this altar of incense would be right before the veil of the temple, and Zacharias would go and get some hot coals, put them on the altar of incense, and then come and very gently allow these incense to fall from his hands onto the burning coals, which would then send smoke up through the 21-story high building, out the hole in the roof, and towards the heavenlies. This was symbolic of the prayers being offered up by the Jewish people. However, while that was happening, the angel Gabriel, an archangel, appeared to Zacharias, and he gave Zacharias a prophecy a prophecy that he and Elizabeth were going to have a son. They were to call him John, and he would be the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, Zacharias was taken back by this. You know, he really did not think that was possible since his wife had been barren all of her life. He didn't think that at her age she'd be able to have a child. Well, because of his unbelief, the angel Gabriel made Zacharias dumb. Not dumb, stupid but dumb can't talk. And in fact, the angel said, you'll not be able to talk until the eighth day in the life of your son when you bring him to the temple for his circumcision. Zacharias finished his priestly responsibilities, the text tells us, as you read chapter 1 of the book of Luke. And in verse 33, it says, And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his administration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. Now, remember, he lived in in Kerem, which is out to the west of the Temple Mount, about seven miles. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she was ready to bring forth a child in fulfillment of what the angel Gabriel had told Zacharias would happen. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57, gives us the record of the birth of this son who would be a cousin to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but would have a very unique role in the ministry of God-man here on the earth. After John was born on the eighth day, his mother and father, Zacharias and Elizabeth, brought him to the temple, as was the custom, for the circumcision service that would take place. And at that point in time, the mouth of Zacharias the priest was loosed, and he spoke and he praised God. But in addition to praising God, he gave a prophecy about what would happen. Verse 76, And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. 
What a prophecy. Here was John to be the forerunner for his cousin Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God-man, Emmanuel, coming to earth. You know, there is an Old Testament prophecy that foretold there would be a forerunner to the Messiah, and in fact, the one spoken of, a prophet by the name of Elijah, had to appear and be the forerunner for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ would have not been the Messiah. I'm referring to the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's a prophecy that indeed could have been fulfilled in John the Baptist. And I make that statement based upon what Jesus Christ said. In Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 11, Jesus said unto all those listening to him teach, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's verse 11. Verse 14 says, And if you will receive him, this is Elijah, which was for to come. Indeed, John the Baptist, according to the words of Jesus Christ, could have been the forerunner called for by the ancient Jewish prophets. However, the Jewish people not only rejected John the Baptist, they rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ, as well. But that prophecy will be fulfilled in the future. John the Baptist had to be involved in the ministry of Jesus Christ at the first coming. John, the cousin of Jesus, would play a key role in the Christmas story. One of the unique prophecies of the first coming, of which there are over 300. That is unique in itself, that one man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled over 300 prophecies about the man who would come to be the Messiah. And of course, those prophecies were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Had the Jews believed, John the Baptist could have been the Elijah of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. But that means Elijah still must come. There's a song that's very popular. We're living in the days of Elijah. I believe as you look at the prophecies surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ, we have the evidence that we're quickly approaching the time when Elijah will appear before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. You see, at the first coming, Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the prophecies that foretold a Messiah would come to the earth. Now that's key, because that gives us then a foundation upon which we can have assurance that all of those prophecies yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled just exactly like they were given in absolute detail. Remember, John the Baptist was the one to be the forerunner at the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Elijah will fulfill that second coming prophecy. He will come on the scene before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We're speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as you look at the scenario that's going to unfold in the end times, as we're thinking about the Christmas story and how all of those prophecies were fulfilled, remember there are five times as many prophecies about the second coming of Christ, and those have to be fulfilled in absolute detail as well. But again, I remind you, 
the fulfillment by Jesus Christ of all the prophecies focusing on the first coming give us the evidence that the second coming will happen exactly like the Bible tells us it will take place. In chapter 4 and verse 1 of Revelation, it talks about an event that will happen before the tribulation period and the return of Christ will take place, and that is the rapture of the church. When Jesus shouts, the archangel shouts, and the trump of God sounds, and we're caught up to be with him in the air forevermore. You know, as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ, it gives us solid evidence that the prophecies for the second coming will be fulfilled as well. I do believe, as we look at all that's happening in our world today and compare it to Bible prophecy, those prophecies for the second coming could be fulfilled in the very near future. As I said several times in our study today, that first coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of all of the prophecies surrounding the birth of God-man, Emmanuel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, all of those prophecies were fulfilled in the absolute detail that they were given by the ancient Jewish prophets. There are five times as many prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the Christmas story, which is a record of the fulfillment of all of those prophecies surrounding the first coming of Christ, give us a foundation upon which we then can be assured that the second coming will happen just exactly as he has told us. This should cause all of us to consider the claims of Jesus Christ, who said he was the Messiah, and through him we could have a relationship with his Father, and not only for now, but forever. Next week on the broadcast, we're going to discuss the issue of the date that we celebrate the birth of Christ, December the 25th. I think this will be of great interest to you. Thank you, Dr. DeYoung, for that teaching. I'm sure we'll be looking forward to next week when we study and understand why we use December 25th as the date for the birth of Jesus Christ. But we have to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The military leaders of three West African nations recently met to legitimize a security and political alliance. Islamic terror groups are rampantly active in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. They've been wreaking havoc in the region since 2015. Terror attacks have left 3 million people homeless. Through Unknown Nations, formerly World Mission, you can send help and hope in the name of Jesus. We'll connect you at our website. And for many Americans, the end of the year brings images of happy families gathered around a Christmas tree, big dinners, holiday music, and cozy fires. For others, the holidays can be a much darker time. According to the CDC, most drug and alcohol-related deaths occur in December, January, and March. The Lighthouse offers hope through a holistic recovery process founded on Scripture. Life transformation is a common result. If someone in your life struggles with addiction, reach out to The Lighthouse at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer.
Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, uh, this program today, I think is so timely as we are thinking about the things that we watch on a daily basis on what's happening around the world. One of the things that you said that struck me is that October 7th and what took place that day has really stood out. In our lifetime, we're seeing something that we thought we would never see Israel being attacked like it it was. And this could be something that could happen more in the future before the rapture takes place. It certainly could, Jimmy. This is something that we did not think could happen again. We've, You and I have both been to Israel so many times. We've taken many people and done many, a lot of video on location there in Israel. And we've I mean, Jimmy, you've probably been to Yad Vashem over a hundred times. And as we go through there, we look at the Holocaust and it was past history. The photos in black and white. And it was the, uh, it was potentially an event that God used to bring the people back into the land of Israel. But when you looked at it, you thought that could never happen again. And, and, and the people at Yad Vashem would say, we do this so it won't happen again. But Certainly what happened on October 7th, and even some of the similarities we hear about all of the Holocaust denial, well, now in front of our eyes, if you go on Twitter, you look at the the world, they're denying that Hamas did what they openly said they did at the beginning. They filmed it themselves, but the world is denying it. It's almost like there's this blindness in their eyes, and it's just, again, reinforces why we focus on Israel, why we focus on the Jewish people, because those are God's chosen people. He has a plan for them, and it's amazing to see the whole world focused on Israel right now. You and I have stood there at Yad Vashem many a time telling that God prepared a land for the people and then God prepared a people for the land. And now as we're looking at it, we're looking at that next stage of Bible prophecy. Yad Vashem brings it close to our minds and uh, we could talk about the denial, anti-Semitism around the world. It's only going to get worse. In fact, I like what Steve Herzig said as we're getting prepared for the festival of lights or festival of dedication, or the world knows it as Hanukkah. And, you know, he gave the formula. If Hamas wants to wipe out Israel or anybody wants to wipe out Israel, of course, God made covenants with Israel. But if they want to do that, it's simple. They just have to get rid of the sun and the moon. 
to stop the moon from shining, to get rid of the sun, and to move the foundations of the earth. And that's in Jeremiah. So we know that God is going to fulfill his promise to the Jewish people in those covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the uh, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant in the future, which is really the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37 and the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones when Jesus Christ will be the Messiah for the Jewish people. So as we focus on these things and we do radio programs, you and I have done radio programs uh, on other people's programs, uh, you know, being interviewed about what our analysis is of what's taking place in the world. And we have to remind Christians to be aware of what's taking place, to understand that God still has a role for the Jewish people. And that's so very important in understanding Bible prophecy. I thought what you did uh, with Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Winky Madad, I thought those were thought out great questions. Any of them that stood out to you that you just feel like it was something that, that you wanted to bring back up to our attention? Well, Jimmy, when you listen to Dave Dolan, and he's talked about this before, this is all about whose God is God. And we talked about that. He talked about that in his book, uh, Holy War for the Promised Land. And even to relate that on even a more personal level, Jimmy, when we look at it, I have a buddy of mine who has an amazing testimony and just what God has saved him out and what God is doing in his life right now. And he texted me today. And he said, Satan is attacking him. He's like, he's like, pray for me, brother. I'm having a tough time. And I thought to myself, the reason Satan is attacking you is because you are just living for the Lord and you're doing amazing. And I look at this situation and I relate that to what is uh, taking place in Israel right now. And Satan sees God's plans coming together. And even just the fact that the people of the Jewish people return to the land in Israel, Satan sees God's plan coming together and he's going to do anything he can to stop it. And I believe he's using the, the demonic religion of Islam or that satanic religion to attack Israel because he's trying to stop God's plan. It's a systematic world thought process that is implemented by Satan. You know, the four criteria, the major trends of Bible prophecy that we keep our eyes on, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, the Aliyah of the Jewish people, the anticipation for peace. Uh, We often talk about a world leader that could come to the forefront. And, you know, we would have never really thought that, uh, not, you know, uh, nine weeks ago. But now we're looking at how the world is getting involved in trying to solve this situation. The alignment of nations, of nations that are lined up in Bible prophecy that are coming against Israel. And of course, you know, all in the background of what's happening, there's a Jewishness that is uh, taking hold in Israel. There's a resolve that Ken Timmerman talked about, Mm. that resolve of the Jewish people to rebuild to come together. And I really do think that we're going to see the temple be um, really put to the forefront. And that's going to be the focal point of all of this is that the Islamic world has a design on God's holy mountain in the city of Jerusalem. And Satan is going to try to control it. Ezekiel said it's going to become a cup of trembling. People are going to become intoxicated with the power of controlling that 
special piece of real estate. Well, Rick, this is the Christmas month, and I sure appreciate our study with our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, as he is looking at the time, the place, and the period in which Christ was born. And I am looking forward to us this month as we celebrate the Christmas holidays. Rick, thanks a lot for doing the hard work today, and I look forward to being with you next week. Well, glad to do it, Jimmy. And I think it's very important that we keep our eyes focused on these events that are taking place around the world in light of Bible prophecy. And as we approach the holidays of Hanukkah, remember this. Jesus said in John eighteen twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The Lord Jesus gives all of us, Jew and Gentile, the light of life. And he commanded us to let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Folks, with all that's going on, we can't help but say the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 